Welcome to Messy Closet, the spiritual journey of Generation X. I'm Roseanne Carlo, and here we explore the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the lessons my friends and I may or may not have learned. Thanks for tuning in. Happy Monday. It's just another Manic Monday, if you ask me. And it is on this day. So I'm going to give you four pieces of history, two from 1983 and two from 1993 that were incredibly significant to me and my friends and my family. And once again, thank you to Soundtrap and Podbean for helping me bring you this episode of Messy Closet. 1993 was a tumultuous year. And 30 years ago yesterday... On February 26th, 1993, if you did not know, prior to September 11th, 2001, there was a bombing at the World Trade Center. This took place at 12.18 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Nothing like this had ever happened in New York City before, much less at the World Trade Center. A a great article on pbs.org called Powder Keg for 9-11, 1993 World Trade Center Bombing Remembered on Anniversary, and this was just written two days, yesterday. So there was a woman named Lolita Jackson, and she was on her 72nd floor desk at the World Trade Center, and she said that she felt like she worked on top of the world. And then came the boom, and smoke started curling from an elevator shaft. So she didn't know what was happening and joined thousands of other office workers on that harrowing trek down the dark, smoky stairs, emerging onto the scene of a terror attack. Interesting story about Lolita Jackson is she also escaped the South Tower on 9-11. Her quote is, I am living testament that it can happen to you and it can happen to you twice. There was a ceremony to mark the 30th anniversary with Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul and they did hold a moment of silence at 1218 to mark the victims' lives. For me, this as well as 9-11, just living through both and knowing people who were seriously affected by it has an emotional toll that this takes on me. But I'd like to get to the facts of the case. FBI.gov has a really incredible archive of information on the bombing and it says that on February 26th, 1993, at about 17 minutes past noon, a thunderous explosion rocked Lower Manhattan. The epicenter was the parking garage beneath the World Trade Center where a massive eruption carved out a nearly 100-foot crater several stories deep and several more high. Six people were killed almost instantly. Smoke and flames began filling the wound and streaming upward into the building. Those who weren't trapped were soon pouring out of the building, many panic-stricken and covered in soot. More than a thousand people were hurt in some way, some badly, with crushed limbs. 
Middle Eastern terrorism had arrived on American soil with a bang. At this point, the FBI is all over Lower Manhattan, and a small band of the people responsible that scurried away from the scene unnoticed. So the FBI and its partners on the New York Joint Terrorism Task Force began staffing up a command center and preparing to send a team in to investigate. And their instincts told them that this was terrorism and they'd been tracking Islamic fundamentalists in the city for months. And later, they'd learn that they were tantalizingly close to encountering the planners of this attack, but hunches weren't enough and they needed definitive proof, which they soon got. More than 700 FBI agents worldwide joined forces and uncovered a key bit of evidence. In the rubble, the investigators under uncovered a vehicle identification number on a piece of wreckage that seemed suspiciously obliterated. So it was just like not part of the bombing. So they searched crime records and it returned a match and it belonged to a rented van reported stolen the day before the attack. And this Islamic fu fundamentalist named Muhammad Salmay had rented the vehicle on March and on March 4th, the FBI SWAT team arrested him as he tried in vain to get his $400 deposit back. So talk about criminals returning to the scene of the crime. And um, they caught him, his greed caught him, and it led to three more suspects that were all tried and convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Remember, this is roughly eight years before 9-11, September 11th, 2001. So they actually uncovered a whole plot to bomb a series of New York landmarks simultaneously. So they wanted to get the UN, the Holland Tunnel, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Federal Plaza where the office of the FBI is housed, and they stormed a warehouse in Queens and caught several members of this terrorist cell in the act of assembling bombs, and this was on June 24th, 1994, but the mastermind was still on the run behind the 93 bombing of the World Trade Center. So they basically found out that he was planning more attacks, including this simultaneous attack and a dozen U.S. international flights. This man's name is Ramzi Youssef, and he was captured in Pakistan in February of 1995 and returned to America and convicted along with the van driver and all of the plotters. There were seven in total. And he said that the plot was actually way more sinister, and he wanted this bomb to topple one tower and knock into the second one and knock them both over and they say that this was literally a dress rehearsal for 9-11. The six innocent people who lost their lives on this day were John D. Giovanni, Robert Kirkpatrick, Stephen A. Knapp, 
William Macko, Wilfredo Mercado, and Monica Rodriguez Smith. And their names are forever inscribed in bronze on the 9-11 memorial on panel North 73. And they are among the other thousands of people with their names on the memorial from 9-11. This was obviously terrifying to many New Yorkers. Just our safety was so at risk and it just was so sensational and outrageous. We really, really never thought that something like this could happen. And it probably should have been more eye-opening than it was considering 9-11, but it wasn't. So that was in the news. But then at the same time, we have a competing story. Some of you may know Waco, Texas as home of Chip and Joanna Gaines and the Magnolia Network and all of her beautiful designs and his amazing work and shiplap and all that stuff. But the way Gen Xers were introduced to Waco, Texas was the Waco siege that happened on February 28th, 1993, and it ended on April 19th, 1993. There is an incredible Netflix documentary, and I know that there were Lifetime movies about this. Don't know how accurate they were, but I remember it clearly because, again, this was so shocking and incredible, and it did not seem real. We really thought, like, in the 80s, we got through the Cold War, we're all right, but then the 90s started to just take this crazy turn, and... We've got bombings in New York City, and all of a sudden the FBI are raiding Waco, Texas with the Branch Davidians. So, okay. So the Waco Massacre is also how it's known. This was the law enforcement siege of a compound that belonged to a religious cult. These were the Branch Davidians. This siege was carried out by the U.S. federal government Texas state law enforcement, the U.S. military. So between February 28th and April 19th, 1993, the Branch Davidians, led by David Koresh, were basically, un like when I say under siege, I mean like they had their electricity and water cut off, they had music blasting at all hours, and they were trying to negotiate with him to get like let the children out or let the women out because there was a massive amount of firearms and ammo found at this compound. This was mostly about stockpiling weapons, but this place, the Mount Carmel Center, this little ranch community in Waco, had a license to manufacture and sell weapons and they were worried about the stockpiling. So they obtained a search warrant for the compound and arrest warrants for David Koresh and some of the higher-ups in his Branch Davidian cult. And just for reference, the Mount Carmel Center in Elk, Texas is actually 13 miles away from Waco. So I guess uh, Mount Carmel Center because maybe it sounded religious, wasn't the best thing to put in the media. So they went with the closest town to it, which is Waco. 
So the siege goes on for 51 days with negotiations. And at the end, the entire compound was engulfed in flames. And 86 people, including children, had died. Now, this actually happened because the ATM attempted to serve a search and arrest warrant for David Koresh on the ranch and gunfire erupted and it happened to be really intense gunfire. It wasn't like they weren't messing around. So it resulted in the death of four ATF agents and six branch Davidians. And when they entered the property, they basically failed to execute the search warrant and this 51-day siege was inflated by the FBI and they launched tear gas into the compound on April 19th. So they just basically attacked a bunch of people with tear gas and they wanted to force the branch Davidians out of the ranch. But right after they threw this tear gas, the whole Mount Carmel Center was engulfed in flames and... It was 76 Branch Davidians, 25 children, two pregnant women, and David Koresh. Now, the origin of the fire has been disputed by a lot of people according to what the source is. And from October 1993 and July 2000, it concludes that although incendiary tear gas canisters were used by the FBI, the Branch Davidians had started the fire based on listening devices and overhearing their discussion and evidence that showed at least three simultaneous ignition points. The FBI contends that none of their agents fired any live rounds on the day of the fire. Critics contend that live rounds were fired by law enforcement and suggested that a combination of gunshots and flammable tear gas was the true cause of the fire. Who knows? Like I said, it depends on the source. This is the FBI source. There are survivors, and some of them have expressed anger at the siege and the way they felt that official accounts kind of removed, like, the Branch Davidians portraying them as victims rather than believers in what... David Koresh was saying. So there is a survivor named David Thilbodu, and his book is called Waco, A Survivor's Story. And he writes, quote, so many of the Davidians have been demonized by the media. I felt it my duty to tell the story, the true story of a group of people who were trying to live according to their religious beliefs and the teachings of a man they all considered divinely inspired. Depends on who you ask, right? Article from Vox. They say the story of Waco is also the story of disagreements over religious freedom, the rights and boundaries of the federal government, and what it means to be a legitimate religion. So David Koresh is the figure most commonly associated with the Branch Davidians. And actually, there were several decades of this group before he became the leader. And they began as the Davidians, or also Shepherd's Rod, 
an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists, a religious Christian movement that flourished in the late 19th century in America and that boasts about 19 million members worldwide today. The Davidian movement actually came from a Bulgarian immigrant named Victor Hutef in 1930, and he just took aspects of 17th-day Adventist theology, and he believed that the Messiah prophesied in the biblical book of Isaiah was not Jesus, but he was yet to come, and this is how he brought about this future Davidic kingdom, and that is where the Branch Davidians began. The Netflix documentary, if you can, because it is incredible, and I'm not going to give any spoilers away, so if you're into these kinds of stories and something that happened, you know, I was a teenager at the time, and it really affected me. I thought it was absolutely insane. Again, that's something else crazy like this was happening in America, like we really kind of always felt safe, even the Cold War things, like we were afraid, but felt invincible. And the 90s kind of took that invincibility away from us in a way it probably hadn't since who knows when, maybe it was World War II. I wasn't alive. But let's get to two incredible things that happened on this day in 1983. On this day in 1983, the final TV episode of MASH aired, and it was a two-hour special, and it was actually directed by the series star. He played Benjamin Franklin Pierce, Alan Alda, and it was titled Goodbye, Farewell, and Amen, and it aired on CBS, and back in 1983, 125 million people tuned in to watch. Now, this was not VCRs because the only thing you could do back in the day was either set your VCR and hope you got it right or stand there and click off all of the commercials and stop, pause, record, do all of that. Or you had to sit there and watch the show. Now, this is 125 million households. Most households in 1983 did not have two or more television sets. They had one, a big box piece of furniture. So that means that an average family of, let's say, four to five people sat down for two hours to watch this episode. And it was way more than 125 million, I think. I just think it was 125 million Households like there had to be more people in there. That's just a weird way my brain thinks but This show is actually still on me TV memorable entertainment television and a few months ago They did play the final episode and it was incredible. I watched the whole thing. I laughed. I cried if you ever find it it is a piece of TV history, classic TV history, and it's just a great episode. MASH first aired in 1972, and it ran for 11 seasons, and it was about the Korean War, and MASH actually lasted longer than the actual Korean War did. The Korean War only lasted for three years. It started in 1950 and ended in 1953. So MASH, for 11 seasons, takes place between 1950 
1953 in South Korea. You can also find episodes on Hulu, and IMDb gives it 8.4 out of 10. Disagree, it's a 10 out of 10. TV Guide gives it 72%. Interesting. And 89% of Google users liked this show. So it revolved around members of the 4077 Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. That is what MASH stands for. And they cared for the injured during the Korean War. And it revolved around using a lot of humor to escape the horror and the desperation. So they've got the cast. So as I mentioned, Alan Alda, he played Hawkeye Pierce and directed the last episode. Gary Berghoff played Radar O'Reilly. Loretta Swit played Margaret Hot Lips Houlihan. Mike Farrell played BJ Honeycutt. Jamie Farr was Corporal Maxwell. Harry Morgan was Sherman T. Potter. And Wayne Rogers was Trapper John. So this show, I remember watching as a kid thinking there's no way I was going to be interested in a show about like war and, and soldiers. But then I learned that they were doctors and nurses who took care of wounded soldiers. And it really drew me in like it drew in so many people because back then in the 80s, especially TV came into your living room. It was an event. Like I said, if you wanted to tape something, that's what we called it. If you wanted to tape something, you got your tape, your VHS, and you put it in the VCR. And our first VCR had the cord with the little buttons that you would press so you could take out the commercials. Kind of wish I would have kept the commercials because it's a piece of history, but we wouldn't do that. But the whole... I guess, event of TV, especially when a really popular show was ending, it brought everyone together, not just like in the families, the immediate families, but you would talk to your friends about it, your relatives, your coworkers, and TV just became an essential part because you didn't know if or when that show was ever going to be played again. And most shows then were 30 minutes. I don't think that there were hour-long shows. I don't 100% remember, but I can't remember one offhand. So if they were to play that episode ever, they would either have to split it into four or take another two hours. And they hadn't done that in many years until I saw it on MeTV. Upon further research, it was actually a two-and-a-half-hour episode. So they hadn't played it, and I couldn't find any particular airing of this after 1983, but it was the most watched scripted episode in TV history. And the only original cast member was Radar, who did not appear in the last episode. He left MASH in 1979 after the seventh season because of burnout and a desire to spend more time with his family, though he returned the following season to film a two-part farewell episode, Goodbye, Radar. 
He was probably my favorite on the show, him and Jamie Farr, because I loved the outfits. It didn't make me think twice to see a man in a dress in the army for some reason. I loved looking at the outfits, but I have a little bit of a strange mind. So that was one of the bigger events that took place in 1983. And for all you Gen X kids out there, especially the girls, you're going to love this one because what happened next in 1983 on this day is... 1983 is dubbed the year of the Cabbage Patch doll. And by Christmas of 1983, there were the Cabbage Patch riots. But in 1976, Xavier Roberts rediscovered the 19th century German craft technique of needle molding to make textile sculptures that he sells at fairs and festivals. And he started this big business. And at age 21, he was capitalizing in the 70s on the crafting craze and selling his original handmade one-of-a-kind dolls. And this kind of fit into the contemporary art movement known as fiber arts. And it's all the rage in museums and it features major works of art by women artists like Judy Chicago, Miriam Shapiro and others and crafting is absolutely the the crave the the craze in the 70s like all the macrame plant hangers and anything you can see on Three's Company I think would give you the most accurate depiction but back to the 80s this is when I guess malls were getting big and consumerism was getting big, but they had a really high price and it was really hard to get these dolls and they had these crazy little names, but they helped children kind of look into being adults and being responsible and they came with an adoption certificate and like a little diaper. So they were sort of made for responsibilities. Now, at the time, they cost $40, and they called this an adoption fee. The beginning of 1983 comes out. There's tons of advertising, all of these, you know, commercials, and it's starting now. Like, the buzz is starting in February, but by November of 83, America went so crazy, and the dolls were scarce, and the demand was high that riots literally broke out in stores. Parents were driving hundreds of miles to buy them. And they were just willing to pay like so much money, top dollar, for these dolls. And everybody, everybody wanted the Cabbage Patch doll. We couldn't wait to like look at the butt and see the signature, Xavier Roberts, because we knew that they had Fabbage Patch dolls, like fake Cabbage Patch dolls. And you didn't want to get the fake one. Like, you could not get the bootleg Fugazi Cabbage Patch. It had to be the real one. It had to have the little signature on its butt. It had to have the adoption papers. The first Cabbage Patch doll, first edition, 1983, CK-18. It was a Valentine's Day doll. She had on little red shoes and white socks little heart shorts and a little red shirt with a heart collar. It said something like, it looks like it says cabbage patch on it, blue eyes and red, red curly hair. And it's got little gold flecks in it. And it says rare. And it's got the Xavier signature on it. And 
and she's in a little stand. It's adorable. I found it on eBay, and I'm looking, but it doesn't say, oh, it just says make offer, which I'm not going to do, but if you're looking for the first Cabbage Patch doll ever with the Valentine's outfit on, it is up on eBay right now, and you can do that. So I wanted to give you this little bit of history from 1993 and 1983 and wish you guys a great week because we're getting into spring. I'm really excited about that here in New York. I am tired of the cold, and I just hope that you guys have a fantastic day. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Messy Closet, and don't forget to keep art and keep love alive.